Good morning. I'm Bob, uh, and I have been asked to bring the message this morning. And the message this morning will come from a passage I selected in 1 John chapter 2. And uh, I want you to find that passage in your Bible. I'll have the scriptures on the screen so that you can follow along. But it's important to me that you know where to find this in your Bible, whether that's a physical book, Bible, or there are plenty of apps out there uh, in which you can have the Bible. So if you would, find First John. You'll find it towards the end of the New Testament. So as you open up your Bible, there's that division between Old Testament and New Testament. New Testament is about two-thirds of the way through the entire book. And as you get into the New Testament, you'll find there books about Jesus uh, that go through his life and teaching, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there'll be a whole series of letters written by Paul and Peter and James and others. And then at the end of that New Testament, you'll come across these very short letters. If you're just doing the quick flip, you might miss them. And those letters are written by John, John the Elder, or quite possibly the Apostle John, brother of James. Uh, and these are very short letters, uh, First, Second, Third John. There's Skip Jude, and then he also wrote Revelation. And so you have these books written by John towards the end. And we'll be in First John today. Uh, this is a fifth Sunday, and uh, our minister, one of our elders, Tony Cloud, has set up with uh, James, our other elder, have set aside this fifth Sunday for others to come and present the message, to preach, to proclaim And I wanted to pause before I get into the message and just encourage you. Uh, If you are someone who has studied God's word and God has given you the ability to proclaim that or present that, uh, say yes when they approach you and say, would you be willing to bring a message? It doesn't have to be both Sunday morning and Sunday night. It could be either one. It doesn't even have to be a long message. Do you know when the first Christians got together, there would be anywhere from three to six speakers? <laughs> Imagine a service like that. Uh, and they weren't long messages. In fact, when one person was done, they were supposed to sit down quickly so the next person could present. The point is that we hear this message. It's the same message. But you may hear it differently from a different person or, or, or something will stand out to you when stated by a particular individual. And so if God's given you the ability to share this, uh, we ask that you say yes. This is preaching is not public speaking. There's nothing about this that has to be perfect or polished. This is proclaiming. It's simply standing up and giving an announcement that somebody else has written. God has provided the message. Our job in proclaiming that is simply to read the message and then, because it's bringing it into a new culture and time, to explain what that means. And so I hope you'll be studying, and when they approach you to say, will you do this, you'll say yes. And then realize you have coaches. Uh, Tony's told me he's happy to coach whoever wants to stand up here and and give the message or preach. And I would do the same. I know James would do the same too. So uh, think of that. Now, 1 John, back to 1 John. This short letter at the end of the New Testament was written by, we know, by John the Elder, quite possibly John the Apostle, He wrote one of those four Gospels that you read in the first of the New Testament. He's somebody who knew Jesus. This is somebody who walked with Jesus, who saw the miracles that he did, who was there at the feeding of the 5,000, was there when people were raised from illness and there when people were raised from the dead. And he brings you to this letter, 1 John. And in 1 John, he begins this letter by saying those things that we heard, the things that we saw and we studied, the things that we touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
And he writes this, this very short letter called 1 John. Now, the, the point of 1 John overall is simply this. Jesus is the true God. Don't settle for any counterfeit. That's the message. And within that message is a passage that I thought I would share with you this morning. And it's in 1 John. starts in chapter 2, verse 28. And let's just read this passage first and then take some time to ask, what does this mean for us today? 1 John 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, take a deep breath, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has thus, or everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away or lift away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil and the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are, or excuse me, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Did you catch the message? The main point that he made in that passage, it's in one line at the very beginning. And when you're trying to figure out in a passage such as this, what's the meaning of the whole passage? There's a good habit to develop. That habit is to go through a passage and find common words and phrases. And usually in the New Testament, if you find one of those words that's used over and over again, the author, whoever wrote this, has in mind that the meaning of that word is really a key to the meaning of the whole passage. Now, you probably saw several words used over and over, but did you notice the one word that kept coming up? It's this word righteousness. And if I mention that righteousness is a key, or the meaning of righteousness is a key to the meaning of this passage, uh, we're immediately faced with a problem. And the problem is that this word righteousness, to you, 
means something very different, or at least incomplete, or very superficial compared to what John had in mind when he took a pen and he wrote this word, righteous, or righteousness. He said, well, what do you mean? Well, if I were to, uh, if we were to go to a coffee shop, we're sharing coffee with each other, and somebody uh, next to us was having a conversation, and we just overheard them talking, and we heard them use this word righteous or righteousness. But if they use that word righteous, what do they likely mean by that word? Well, they likely mean one of two things. Either they're speaking un, in an unflattering way about somebody else, <laughs> as if they are self-righteous, talking about someone else being haughty or boastful, or they're having a religious conversation. They're talking about something spiritual. And they're using this term righteous probably to mean either justice or virtuous, meaning that a person is sinless. And most of you are saying, well, I I thought that's what it meant. I thought to be righteous meant to be sinless. But again, that is, you'll find, a very superficial understanding of what this word meant to John. Uh, An illustration here might help. If you were to ask what I did this week, I would say I went backpacking with my family. And we, uh, this time, went out to Willowa Lakes, which is one of our favorite places to go. Now, if you ask what I did, and I said we went backpacking, there's something that comes to your mind. Now, for some of you who have been backpacking, it'll be a much fuller (laughs) or larger definition than those of you who say, I don't understand why anybody (laughs) puts a bag on their back and walks out into the wilderness when there's a perfectly good place to sleep at home. I have a friend from Haiti who can't understand why in Alaska we enjoy camping and going outside. But that's what we did this week. Now, when I say the word backpacking, what comes to mind for you will be based on your prior experience, whether or not you've done this before. But I think most of you would understand that this means more than just putting a bag on my back and walking out somewhere into the wilderness. Because in that backpack are certain items. It's full of equipment. There's a tent. There's a sleeping bag. There's a stove, there's food, uh, there's all the things that we might need while we are out there in the wilderness. And we're going to use those items. And we get to camp, and we pull out the tent and the sleeping bag and the food and the stove, and we use those to stay somewhere. So this idea of backpacking takes on a much fuller definition. But those of you who have done this before know that there's even a deeper layer. And that is there, coming out of the tent in the morning, and we see this incredible vista And then we fight off mosquitoes as we are eating our breakfast. And then we share memories and we solve problems. And we make these memories together. And then we come back home and the whole group of people who went backpacking have something to share in terms of these memories and something that they did, something they did together. My my point in this is not to talk about backpacking, though we could talk about that a long time. My point here is to say one word, backpacking, really can be so deep with meaning that things that you pull out. Now, the same is true of biblical words. And there are a lot of words in the Bible that are like this. In fact, most of the words that you see used over and over again are words like this, where the word itself has deep layers and layers of meaning. And the longer you spend time studying Scripture and making these connections, the more you will see these vistas and make these memories and associate these words with problems that have been solved in your own life. These are the big words, words like faith and grace and hope, and words used by John in the other parts of this letter, like life and light and love, or what I like to call the shortest of all the big words, joy. 
And there's also the bad words of the Bible. Sin and trespass and debt and darkness. And all of these are words that have deep meaning and layers. Now I say that so that you'll pause, take a deep breath, and realize that our typical definition of righteousness is insufficient. Simply thinking of righteousness as being sinless or virtuous or just being some word associated with justice is, is, is incomplete. It, it has a much fuller meaning. Uh, in fact, if you go to a theological dictionary, here's the definition that they give. The word righteousness, the basic meaning of righteousness in the Bible, denotes not so much the abstract idea of justice or virtue as a right standing and consequent right behavior, catch this, within a community. To be righteous is to have a right standing and constantly act right within a group, within a community. It's interesting, if I were to ask you, well, how do you, how do you describe a person who's righteous? If we say, there is a righteous man, what do we mean by that? Well, most of the time, if you try to answer that question, you'll answer it in the negative. You'll tell me what that person is not. Well, that's a person who does not get drunk. They do not use coarse language. They do not commit adultery. They do not malign their neighbor. They don't, they're not mischievous, not uh, temperamental. They're not mean to others. You know, so you list this, this whole list of nots. But that's a strange way to describe something that's meant to be good. If I were to say, I have a great truck, and you say, well, tell me what makes it great. And I say, well, it doesn't have flat tires. It doesn't have a dead battery. It doesn't have a cracked windshield. <laughs> You'd say, well, that's, that's, that sounds like it works, <laughs> you know. But that's not telling me why it is great. And yet that's what we do about people. When defining whether or not a person is righteous, we tend to think of it in the negative. But that's not what Scripture does. Scripture, when it, when it speaks of a person who is righteous or practicing what is righteous, it's describing in a positive sense, what is it that a person does to support either a relationship with other people or a relationship with God? In fact, when you go through Scripture and look at all the cases where this word righteousness is used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, and then as it's brought over into Greek and it's paired up with this word justice, what you find is that the basic foundational meaning of this word righteous is that things are right, but you don't hear it used about a thing. I would never say, unless it was the 60s or 70s, that my truck is righteous, right? We don't don't use that term about things. We use that term about people and specifically about relationships. And in Scripture, the two relationships that, that are uh, that are referred to when using the word righteous are relationships with other people and relationships with God. And when those relationships are right or are made right, then that that is righteous. That's a, a status of things being uh, right or righteous. And you'll see this in other places. Just to give you some examples to sort of put a hook on when, when the, the lawyer went up to Jesus and said, of all the laws, the 600 and some odd laws in the Old Testament, of all those laws, which ones are the most important? And Jesus mentioned two. The first, love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He's mentioning those, those are the two most important relationships. Things being right with God, things being right, you know, with others. When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
because they are the ones that will be called children of God, peacemakers, those who bring together the relationships. Uh, when Jesus talks about the acts of righteousness, again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before other people just to be seen by them. And do you remember what those acts of righteousness were? The first one is giving to the needy. Uh, Stephen Washington in the communion thoughts this morning gave a beautiful example of what that's like for a neighbor to recognize the need of a neighbor and to, in secret, come to the back door and to take care of the need of someone else. And Jesus would say that is an act of righteousness. Not because it was somehow virtuous and before God seen as a a, a star, you know, in your crown. It's seen as righteous because it's one neighbor recognizing what another neighbor needs and it's restoring that relationship. And the other two things that Jesus mentions as acts of righteousness are prayer and fasting, which is about that relationship with God. So you hear that. My point is you hear that over and over again. This morning, and uh, I just ran across this, Second Peter this morning in chapter 3, when it talks about at the end of time, when God basically cleanses the whole universe and there's a remaking of this new heaven and new earth. And he says there in the passage 3 verse, uh, this is Second Peter, sorry, 3 verse about 13. He says, and according to this promise, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But don't miss the last phrase. Where righteousness dwells. What is it that's really going to be made right at the end? It's this relationship between people and between God. Well, I can get carried away on that. But I think most of you would recognize this. In our world right now, when it comes to a relationship between other people and with God, things are not right. Things are quite wrong. In fact, I just opened up one of my news apps this week, and I randomly randomly <laughs> saw this common list of headlines. Let's see if these aren't the same ones you saw this week. One nation is attacking another nation. There's a deadly communicable disease, a new one, spread by human behavior, which threatens our health. A politician is caught acting in self-interest and against the interest of the people. Homelessness is stretching the capacity of local government. Wildfires threaten homes, cities, economies, and favorite landmarks. A favored animal is now endangered. A trusted adult is charged with sexually exploiting children. People are killing other people. Neighbors express hateful contempt for other neighbors for forcing their own views. Refugees are found dead in an attempt to escape oppression. The structures of family are crumbling, and it goes on and on. You pull up any news app this week, and that's the list of things that you'll get. What's interesting is if you go back to last week or the week before, the names and places and nations will have changed, but the news list is still the same. Things are not right. And that's that's just as true as it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, we didn't have apps. You know, you would turn on the nightly news. That's when you got the news for the day. And as you think back to what was going on 30 years ago, you'll remember the names of the nations, the people, the places, all of those would be different, but the issues were the same. The world was messed up. And the same is true if you keep dialing the clock back. 100 years ago, it would have been a newspaper. Open the newspaper. Same list of problems were there a hundred years ago. And if you keep going back through all the generations to the first century when this letter was written, you find that there the names were different. Nations were things like Rome, places like Ephesus and Pergamum. Uh, the people's names were different. But the problems that John was addressing in this book were 
the same. The world was a messed up place. And if you were to ask John, where did all of that start? Did you catch where he, where he said the problem started? He took you back to the beginning. If you ask John where it all began, he would take you back to Genesis chapter 1. And you don't have to read all of that. We don't have time to read it now. But let me just take you through what happened in each of those chapters. Genesis 1 is when God created the heavens and the earth. And he fashions the entire earth there over six days. And on the sixth day, God makes a human being. What was called an Adam, which didn't mean Adam. It became his name, but it just meant a human being. God made this human being and he made these human beings, or this human being, in his own image. And he gave this human being a role, a job, to be God's image in this world and to make the world what it should be, to help cultivate it as a garden. That was the human being's job. In Genesis chapter 2, God has to solve the very first problem that's introduced into the world. And that first problem was not sin. The very first problem that God had to solve was the alone problem. It was not good that this Adam, this human being, was alone. To be one at that time meant to be alone. And so God made another human being. It was a same make, a little different model. They were compatible. And he brought them together, and we're told there in Scripture that they became one. But now, being one, they were not alone. This is a totally different sermon, but that's really the essence of marriage and its value to an entire society, is that it's its first example of how God created a situation where a group of people even could be one, but not not alone. That was Genesis 2. But as my son likes to say, after God solved that problem, the human beings got mischievous. And the rest of Scripture is about God solving the problem that comes up in Genesis 3. And that's the the story you read where... The crafty serpent comes to Eve and tempts her. And this is where Eve is walking through the garden and the serpent comes and and asks a question. Did God really say that you can't eat from the fruit of the garden? She says, oh no, we can eat from any of the fruit of the garden except the tree in the midst of the garden. We can't eat of that one because if we eat of that, God says we will surely die. And this is where the devil introduces the great lie. You will not surely die, he says. For God knows that when you eat it, here's the lie, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now you looking at that in retrospect know why that's a lie. You look at that and say, you're already like him. (laughs) You were made in his image. You already see him. What else is there to see? But she traded in that moment the truth for a lie, gave some to Adam, and both of them together traded the truth for a lie, and they reached for something that was not God because they thought in that they would find wisdom, because in that they would find something that they were missing, and in that they would be like God. And so the trade, the fatal trade, was made. And everything deteriorated from there on out. Immediately, they recognized what they had done. And do you remember what they did? First of all, the relationship was severed with each other. They tied on fig leaves and covered themselves because they were suddenly ashamed. We were told in chapter 2 that they were unclothed and not ashamed. But now, having broken this relationship with God and recognizing this missing the mark in each other, 
They were ashamed and could not even stand in front of each other. Notice they made the fig leaves before God showed up. This was that shame towards each other. And they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then when God shows up in the garden, what do they do? They run and hide. Now, I've always pictured, as in the pictures they draw, that Adam and Eve are still hiding together. If you read through the text, it's open to the idea that they went and hid in separate places because their relationship had been severed, the relationship with each other and the relationship with God. You see how unrighteousness had made its way into the world. And things went downhill from there. Of course, they have children, uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain ends up succumbing to the evil one and killing his brother. And then there's this murderous tension that goes on. And things get worse and worse until nations are doing that with each other throughout the world. The whole world becomes corrupt and evil. And so God basically has to look down at the keyboard and hit the Control-Alt-Delete and reset the whole program. And he sends a flood over the earth. Only eight people survive. But of those eight people, if you follow their line, sin is still a part This severing of relationships is still a part of those human interactions. And then it leads to Babylon and then to the other nations of the world. And the world becomes corrupt again. But there is hope. Because way back in Genesis chapter 3, God is handing out the punishments. And he says to the man, you know, the world's going to be cursed because of you. Then he says to the woman, you're going to be the mother of all the living. And it will be a painful, painful childbirth. But then he turns to the serpent and he says to the serpent first, I will put enmity between you and her, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head or he will bruise your head and you will strike his heel. And so you have this promise that between the devil and the woman, there would be this ongoing fight between, don't miss this, their children. And one day, they think, in this is this promise that one of that woman's children will eventually crush the head of the evil one. Well, why does all of this matter? Well, because when we fast forward to John's time, there were many different solutions to this problem of evil that had been introduced to the world. Uh, the Roman Empire showed one solution, and that was the peace of Rome. For 200 years, Rome exerted its power, and we come to find that the peace of Rome keeping things right in terms of relationships with each other occurred because of the power of Rome. It was a terribly oppressive, evil, uh, you know, type of society. But others within that society said, no, the solution is personal pleasure. We can't control anything. And so the goal, the, the highest good is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. These were the Epicureans. And because religion is one of the greatest sources of pain in the world, We're going to give an argument for why there is no God. Instead, everything will be described as being made up of atoms that are falling through the universe and randomly collide. And from that, the world is made. There is no, there is no God. The goal is personal pleasure. Others said, no, there is something out there that we are held to and that are certain principles that whether good or bad, whether they make you feel good or uh, or, or harmful to you, you should follow these principles. Those would have been the Stoics. And then there were all these other philosophies. And if you look through the philosophies, especially the ones that were philosophies of, that centered on a person's self, you realize, like Gnosticism, that what they believed is that inherently the body was evil, the soul, the spirit was good, and the solution to the problem of evil was to somehow find the secret knowledge to escape this body 
to take off this body to put on something new that would be good. And you see echoes of that even in today's society. Well, those were the solutions on offer, and that's what brings us back to our passage and the message for today. Back to 1 John, where John says, here's the solution to the world's greatest problems of evil. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may, not, we may be confident and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. There's his solution to the world's greatest problems of a severing of relationships with other people and relationships with God. The solution is abide in him. What does this word abide mean? Well, this is another one of those backpack words you kind of have to take apart. Uh, but I think the, the easiest way to do that in this case is with an illustration. What does it mean to live in him or to dwell in him or to remain in him? Uh, your versions may use different words there. It's kind of like when you take your kids on a trip. If you're like me, when you know we go to the airport, our kids now are very good at traveling. I can just hand them basically their ticket and they go off <laughs> all over the world. They know how to navigate that. But when they were young, that wasn't true. And when we go to the airport, I had one of, I guess, three options. One option would have been to say, uh, here's your ticket. See if you can figure it out. <laughs> and then we get to the airplane, and I'd see if they figured it out. That would have been a terrible option. I'd probably be in jail if I had followed that option on a regular basis. Second option would be to say, let me tell you what to expect. Here's your boarding pass. You're going to go through TSA. When you're in TSA, they're going to want to check you for any kind of medals. Take out all your medal, including the matchbox cars, and put them in the tray. You're going to have to walk through a metal detector. If it goes beep, 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 they're going to have to check and find, so make sure you have all the metal. Please, please, please pour out all of your liquids, because that's going to stop things and slow you down. And I talk them through that process. And once you get through TSA, you can put all your stuff back together, but don't forget your backpack and your wheelie bag. And you go down this long, long hallway with lots of letters on it. Now, we've learned our letters, and so you're looking for C, and we've learned our numbers, C5. That's what you're going to be looking for. Now, on your way there, there are going to be all kinds of establishments that are going to be tempting. And you want to go in and look at their toys and look at their books. And there'll be some serving foods, some which you should not touch and should not eat. And there'll be a McDonald's, and I know you're going to want to stop there. You know, and so I, I talk them through. And eventually you'll get to the gate, and they're going to call that it's a flight. And you'll go up and hand them your boarding pass, and then and they'll say, welcome, and they'll call your name. And make sure it's the right name. <laughs> you got the right boarding pass. And then you'll get on that plane, only the one that's at C5, and you'll go and find this seat right here. This is our seat. And you'll go find that seat. And when you get there, I'll be sitting right there, and then we'll be able to sit down with each other. Now, what if I did that with my five-year-old or four-year-old? Again, you would probably uh, call maybe a different state agency and say, we need some help with this. For That's not the way to get your kids through. No, I didn't do that with any of our kids. What technique did I use? What method did I use with my kids? Same one you used. We get to the front of TSA, and I say three words. And what were those three words? Stay with me. Now that word, if you understand that phrase, stay with me and all it means, is the word that John is using here. Don't miss this. Jesus doesn't just send you into the world and say, I hope you figure it out. And we'll see at the end, there'll be a judgment day and we'll see if you figured it out. Jesus doesn't do that. Nor does he just hand you a list of rules and say, here, follow this list of rules. Here's all the things you're going to face, all the things that you need to know. And in each of these situations, if you get everything just right, then at the end you'll find that you and I are sitting right there together in heaven. It's not what Scripture teaches. 
Instead, what Scripture teaches is what John says here, is that Jesus reaches out his hand and says, abide in me. Now, where did John get this? John's not making up this metaphor. The word abide there is probably for most Jewish people brought to mind this idea of tents because they would actually stay in these tabernacles and they would all, you know, camp basically together. And the idea was God came in the tabernacle and, and stayed with them. But John had a different metaphor in mind. The idea of dwelling with him, that came from Jesus. When Jesus uses a metaphor of a vine and branches and he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches in John 15. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. That word remains is the same word. If somebody stays with me, if they dwell in me. And John reaches back to that metaphor and says, there's the secret. My children abide in him so that, and here's where he takes you back to Genesis. See if you catch this. We'll just go through the rest of the passage and see if you catch the connection. Abide in him because if you abide with him, we will have confidence and not like Adam and Eve... We will not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Because if you know that he is righteous, if God is restoring this relationship, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, again with this definition, who practices making things right with others and making things right with God, has been born of him. Or some of your versions will say, has been fathered by him. And then John says, take a deep breath. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. As an aside, I was reading some commentators that said, Woe to the man who ever has to preach on this verse. Because after reading this verse, he has nothing more to say. I'm going to let that sink in. See what kind of love, what manner of love, the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And not just called that. That's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I think there's a common knowledge in our culture now, if there's anything that's common in the generation coming up, it's that we, none of us, none of us are right. There's something in me that's just not right. And so there's a grasping for that tree in the middle of the garden for every manner of way to make things right, of doing things to my body and with my body, of seeking pleasure, of seeking knowledge, of seeking uh, wealth, of seeking status of seeking identity in some way. There's this sense everybody recognizes it. I am not right. And John recognizes that too. You understand, we are not what we will be. But, uh, or we were not, excuse me, verse 2. <clears throat> what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, catch this, he takes you back to Genesis again. We will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Do you hear the reversing of the temptation that Eve fell for? Of the trading the truth for a lie? He says, one day, one day, your eyes will be opened. You will see him and you will be like him again. Restored in that relationship to God that was there in the beginning. This is a reversing of what we read there in Genesis or heard about in Genesis. 
and everyone who thus hopes in him. In other words, everyone who has this hope, this this faith in this future outcome of self and of humanity purifies himself just as he is pure. This is what has that cleansing effect. This is what allows us to go back through that list of things we heard as, as we were preparing to commune with him today, as we thought about all those things in our life that just aren't right. The motivation for getting those things and pushing those things out of our life is that one day he's going to make me right again, like him. And that causes me to purify myself. This had sort of a temple-type air to it. Uh, St. Augustine, he wrote a, a commentary on this book. And in this part, he uses the illustration of a vase. He says, you are meant to be filled with honey, but right now you're filled with vinegar. <laughs> and so what do you do? You have to pour out the vinegar to put in the honey. But he says, you don't just pour out the vinegar and then put the honey in. You pour out the vinegar and you scrub the pot so that it will be acceptable for the honey. And he says that's what happens when you realize the, the, the type of love that the God of this universe has for you. It has this cleansing effect. And it separates you from those who practice sin. So let me just go through this part, and then we'll close. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin, in fact, is a breaking of the law. You know that he appeared in order to lift away sins. And in him, Jesus, there is no sin. No one, here's your word again, who abides in him keeps on sinning. I'm going to pause there because some of you will say, well, I thought I was in him, and I still sin. And John here is not saying that you will be sinless. In fact, earlier in the letter, he says, if you stand up and confidently say, I don't sin, he said, we all know you're a liar, and you're lying to yourself. That's what he says in chapter 1. What he's saying here is that a person who abides in him does not keep on sinning. There's a check and a balance so that when sin occurs, it's repented of and corrected. But a person who is following Christ, who abides in Christ, does not keep on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Again, back to the garden. Don't let the serpent deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Now let the fuller meaning come in. Because he is righteous. So whoever is abiding in him is a part of making things right with their community and making things right with God. Whoever makes a practice of sinning or breaking those connections and bonds within the community and the bonds with God is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It's a powerful line. And you saw in the beginning where the devil started that fracturing of relationships. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Oh, wouldn't that be refreshing? I can't sin. Why? Because I've been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a verse that may sound disturbing to many of you. How is it that John, a follower of Christ, could look at another human being and say that human being is a child of the devil. 
That seems like a mean, heartless thing to say. And then to discriminate between those who are children of the devil and those who are children of God. I thought all were to be made children of God. Well, understand that in John's mind, again, he is taking you back to the beginning. And he took you back to the garden where the punishments were being handed out. And he says to the serpent, you realize there will be a fight. There will be enmity. There will be hatred between your seed, your offspring, your children, he says to the devil, and hers, her offspring and her children. And John is taking you back to that moment and saying, here's how you tell who are part of the bruisers of the head versus the strikers of the heel. Who are the children of Eve, by extension, the children of God, versus those who become the children of the evil one? You hear how he reaches back to that. And he says, this is how you tell the difference. Whoever is reaching out and working on and striving to correct those fractured relationships within their community is a child of God. Those who are striving to, to correct that relationship with God are the ones who are the children of God. And they cannot keep on sinning. And then he reaches for his next topic, which is to say, and this is why, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not a feeling of love, but a practicing of seeing your needs and laying down my life to meet your needs. Again, during communion, you heard that beautiful example of what that's like to see a person's needs and then to secretly go and to take what is yours and to share with someone else. In a a very simple sense, that's what John is talking about here, is practicing love for one another in this community that is this church, in our community that is Anchorage, in Alaska as a whole, and even by extension throughout the world. You realize that you and I, when rescued by God from our sin, could have been whisked away. But he leaves us. He leaves us here. He leaves us here to be part of the solution. And that's what John takes you back to and says, basically, here's how you tell who in this world is a part of the solution, making things right again, versus those who are still making things fractured and wrong. But did you catch catch the secret? What is it that you are to do in order to be this person who's making the world or a part of making the world right again. The correct way to say that is, what is it you are to do so that through you, God can work to make the world right again? And did you catch the the line? It's the line at the very first when John says, and now little children, abide in him. Stay with me. Stick with me. And the greater message of all of 1 John, as you read through that, is don't settle for any counterfeit. Well, what's the message then for you? Some of you have followed Christ for a long time. And you know what I mean when I say there is a comfort, a rest, in just being reminded that at the end of the day, my goal is to dwell in him. And I hope this morning's message has been a reminder of that. That John, writing, even though this was 2,000 years ago, seems to have read your mail. He, he knows what's going on in your home because I suspect in your life things are not right. You recognize the world's not right. And I can list uh, things that are on the news app, but what the news apps will never have is what's going on in your house right now. 
and what you're struggling with and what's wrong, what's fractured in your life, in your home, in your marriage, in your plans, in your school, in your job, with your neighbors. There's no way for me to know that. But you all recognize there's something that's not right. And John brings out this reminder and says, let me remind you of the solution, is that you remain in him. You stick with Jesus. Now, some of you are still wondering whether or not you should follow Jesus. Have you seen enough of him? Have you heard enough of his teaching or seen what he's done to make a decision to follow him? This is the invitation John gives, is that you become a child of God. He doesn't tell you how to do that in this passage. To become a child of God is to put your faith, your firm conviction and trust in him, to give feet to your faith and to be baptized. That means a a washing and a burial. And then to be raised up uh, in that commitment, that signing on the dotted line type of commitment to him, and to be raised up a child of God. Uh, John will later in this book say, that's how you step over out of death and into life, to be made by God one of his children again. And that, that could happen today for any of you who choose to do so. And some of you say, I'm a long way away from that. <laughs> uh, and perhaps you hear these stories and you say, you know, these ancient stories sound a lot like just myths that may be applied to a different generation. But I hope in hearing the connections today, you've seen something that should strike you as a bit eerie. And that is, for thousands and thousands of years, people have been talking about the same thing. And the problem that goes all the way back to the story that you heard there in the garden is the the story of why things are wrong today. And hopefully you hear in a letter that was written 2,000 years ago that there's someone 2,000 years ago who seemed to have an answer that was not on offer anywhere else at the time. And as you look at the solutions that are offered to you now, I wonder if you'd be willing to hear what John says and say there is, there is an offer. And that is that the God of this universe, the one who made the entire universe, if you can get that far in accepting that this world is made by a creator, what's it like when you realize you are meant to be a child of God? And then God remakes you, who were once part of the problem, into being part of the solution. That's the invitation that John gives to abide in him. Well, there's a lot there to think about, and I hope it gives you something to think about as we go into our next song. I hope, uh, as, as we do, that you'll stand and think about how these things apply to you. And if there's something the church can pray about together, uh, feel free to come forward while we stand and while we sing.